message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids... Our young disciples this morning, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon. First, be listening for what Paul is referring to when he uses the phrase, works of the law. What does works of the law mean? Second, be listening for which obscure Old Testament book Paul quotes in our passage. What obscure Old Testament book does Paul quote? And third, be listening for a story about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross. Well, we're picking back up this morning in our spring sermon series as we consider the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And one of the things that we have seen as we work through this letter is that Paul is a bit frustrated with the Galatians, to put it mildly. We might say that he's hot under the collar. He uses some pretty emotional and pointed language as he addresses the Galatians. Now, this letter was written approximately 30 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the earliest letter that we have in our New Testament. And the question we're confronted with as we reflect on this letter is, what is Paul so upset about? What could make him so upset this early into the Christian missionary endeavor? Well, I think it's important to highlight some things that Paul is not upset about. He's not upset about God's law or God's commands. After all, all of God's law is good and true and beautiful. It's meant to paint a picture of what God loves and values. God's law is meant to lead us into the flourishing life, into shalom. On top of that, Paul is not upset with the Galatians for engaging in good works as a response to their relationship with Jesus. After all, as James says in his letter, faith without works is dead. As followers of Jesus, you and I, we are called to manifest fruit in our lives. We are called to respond to God's grace with obedience and service and charity to our neighbor. So if Paul isn't up in arms over the law or up in arms over good works, what exactly has gotten Paul so exercised in this letter? Well, he's upset over how the Galatians are now relating to the Old Testament law. Specifically, the Jewish customs pertaining to circumcision and dietary restrictions in the keeping of Torah. And how they've been convinced by false teachers to adopt the works of the law as a means through which they can earn God's acceptance and love. It's crucial to understand that distinction. The Galatians, they've got it all backwards. They aren't responding to God's love with obedience. Instead, they're seeking to earn God's love through their obedience. And by so doing, according to Paul, they're compromising the very message that he has risked his life to proclaim. This morning, we'll continue to understand why Paul is so worked up by the damage these false teachers are causing the Galatians as we pick back up in... Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, you follow along as I read. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. Well, there are certain times in life where we are subject to inspections. We can think of big purchases that require inspections. Maybe you're buying a house or a business, and it's important to make sure you get those things inspected that you kick the tires, so to speak, so that you can understand what you're getting before closing on the deal. Every year, we all have to take our car to get inspected so that we can get our new Texas registration sticker. Mine's a little bit out of date at this point, I'm sad to say. But it's ensuring that our car is roadworthy. We've all experienced what passing scrutiny looks like in school where we're graded and then letters are actually placed next to the subjects that help us understand exactly how we measure up on a scale of 1 to 100. And I'm sure some of you set the grading curve, and others of us were just happy to ride the curve that you set, to be honest. But we all have standards that we live by. Some of those standards and expectations are imposed on us, and some of them are self-imposed. But we are not unfamiliar with inspection with passing scrutiny, with figuring out how we objectively measure up. We all long to have significance, to stand out. We all want to belong. And because it can be hard to empirically and objectively know if we pass scrutiny, you and I are constantly measuring ourselves and we typically use things that are important to us in life to do it. We think of things like our vocation, our career, our parenting, our morals, our resources and material possessions, our self-discipline, our compassion, our theological fidelity. And the list could go on with how we set standards for ourselves and others, standards that aren't necessarily ill-intentioned at all, but standards nonetheless that help us know how we measure up, help us know if we pass scrutiny, help us know if we belong. We've all grown up in a meritocracy here in America, a culture where you get what you deserve, where if you work hard, you get rewarded, where if you play by the rules, you have an expectation that things will go well and work out. That's the culture in which we live. And we're prone to bring that very same mentality into our relationship with God if we're not careful. A merit-based mentality, it just comes naturally to each one of us. We like to know who's worthy and who isn't. Who's in and who doesn't pass scrutiny? Which is why we're prone to set up extra standards and rules to make us feel more secure. To assuage the internal questions that we have about whether we measure up, whether we belong. And it's this very propensity that the false teachers who infiltrated the Galatian church were exploiting among the Galatians. Remember, false teachers, they came behind Paul And they basically said that faith in Jesus, that's great, but it's not enough. That's far too loose a standard. 
So they taught the Galatians that on top of trusting Jesus, they also needed to adopt certain Jewish customs and traditions in order to really pass scrutiny, in order to really belong. And these customs and traditions, they were black and white. They were very explicit practices like dietary restrictions and circumcision. And it's these customs and traditions that Paul has in mind when he uses the phrase works of the law. You could very clearly see, are you in or are you out? In Paul's contention, in fact, the thrust throughout his entire letter to the Galatians is that you either live by merit or you live by faith. You either live according to the works of the law or you live according to the promises that God has made, which are received as you simply believe. According to Paul, those are the two options the Galatians have. Either you're accepted by God through your obedience or you're accepted by God through simply believing His promises. You're either justified by works of the law or by faith in Jesus. You're either justified by doing or believing. And Paul makes the case in verse 10 of our passage that if you want a life through the law, if you want blessing through your doing, then guess what? You have got to keep all of the law. Paul says this in verse 10, look at it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is highlighting that the only blessings the law has to offer are for those who keep all the law. And this is the principle of the law. It's just do it. If you do the law, you can be legally righteous and you will live. But the law is not flexible. If you want the law, you will live by it or you will die by it. If you want the law, you've got to take it all. You've got to clean your entire plate, so to speak, is what Paul's saying here. And on top of that, we also learn from Jesus that the law goes much deeper than we think. It goes much deeper than just outward obedience. And so before you make the decision that you want the law, you should consider this. Do you ever stretch the truth? Do you ever lust after another person? Do you ever take something that doesn't exactly belong to you? Do you ever speak an unkind word? If so, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, God's law condemns you as a liar, an adulterer, a thief, a murderer. In other words, the law, it goes much deeper than surface level obedience. It gets to our motivational structures. It's all about what you desire, not just what you do. According to our passage, everyone who depends on the law is under a curse because curses are what lawbreakers deserve. We heard it this morning from Deuteronomy when Seth read it out loud. It was kind of stark to hear, wasn't it? Everyone breaks the law. Everyone deserves a curse. And we'll see this more in depth next week, but God didn't give us the law to make us good. That was never its intention. He gave us the law to show us how bad we really are. The law is meant to break us. It awakens our deep need. It awakens sin. It's meant to drive us to Jesus in faith. So if the law can't bless us, then how can we receive God's blessing? That's the question that Paul is trying to address throughout the letter to the Galatians. How do I stand in right relationship with God? How can God accept me? What must I do to gain His favor? In a word, how can you and I be justified? Well, Paul wants the Galatians and us to consider the question, 
What happens when you base your life on a standard only to find you don't measure up? What happens when you base your happiness and fulfillment and acceptance on an inspection on a test that you could never pass? Paul's making the case in our passage that the law could save you if you could keep it. But no one can keep it because we're all sinners. And according to Paul, the result of failing to keep the law is a curse. Paul's drawing directly from the Old Testament where God laid out blessings that would follow Israel if they kept the law in curses that they would experience if they failed to keep the law. The argument would go, if you want to base your life on works of the law, then you get what you deserve. Obedience merits God's blessing, while disobedience merits God's curse. And if you experience this curse Uh, both objectively and subjectively as we disobey. Subjectively, if you want to base your relationship with God according to how well you keep the works of the law, guess what? Then you are in for anxiety about how you're doing. You're in for a life of frustration when you can't seem to get your act together. You're in for a life of envying others who seem to be doing better or enjoying more of God's blessings than you. You'll be inflated with pride when things go well. And you'll be dejected when things begin to go poorly. And objectively, if you want to base your relationship on God, with God, according to how well you keep the works of the law, if you take that route, you will never earn God's smile. You'll never merit His acceptance. You will always find yourself falling short of the standard because you've got no power in and of yourself to meet the demands that the law lays out. In fact, your natural tendency now is to work against it. So Paul's going to great lengths to help us understand that you cannot earn your own salvation. It's Christianity 101. It almost sounds too simple to even say. And that's tough news. You can't earn your salvation. But the good news, the unbelievable news, the joyful news that Paul has spent his life trying to proclaim is that you don't have to earn your salvation. Now, the works of the law will never tell you that. If you want to make the works of the law your savior, if you want to make the works of the law your Messiah, they will constantly say that you've got to try harder. You've got to be better. You're just a little bit of hard work away from reaching your destination. The bottom line question Paul wants you to answer in this letter is, are you under a law agreement or are you under a promise agreement when it comes to your relationship with God? That's the bottom line. That's the question I want you to keep in mind as we continue to reflect on this passage. You'll notice that Paul uses multiple Old Testament quotes in the passage that we just read. He uses four quotes in the span of five verses. Paul is going out of his way to use the Old Testament to solidify his argument because the false teachers, they were also using the Bible to lead people astray. Why does Paul liberally use the Old Testament to make his case? Well, he uses the Old Testament to show that what he's teaching is not new. He's teaching what's been there all along. It's what God always intended for his people. You just have to interpret the Old Testament in the proper way to understand that it has always been about faith. Always been about believing God's promises. He's building his case on what they've always had right in front of them. The false teachers just misunderstood it. In verse 11, Paul quotes from Habakkuk, which I know each of us had our small uh, devotion this morning in that book. Habakkuk chapter 2, 
where the prophet says, that was a joke, by the way. Um, I've told you before, I never feel more unfunny than 1030 on a Sunday morning. Um, But in verse 11, Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, where the prophet says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And the immediate question becomes, faith in what? Well, faith that God is true to his promises, that he can accomplish what we cannot. It's how God's people have always been saved, through faith. But we have the benefit now of more revelation than Old Testament believers did, right? We now have Jesus. And on this side of the cross, we know now how all of God's promises come to fulfillment. What once was a dark room is now filled with light, and Jesus is that light for us. Now, what did Jesus do for us? Well, according to Paul, Jesus took the curse that our law-breaking deserved so that we might receive the blessing that his obedience deserved. And how did he do that? Well, according to our passage, he did it by becoming a curse himself. In order to understand what Paul is teaching here, you've got to understand that the penalty for breaking the law of God is the wrath of God. If you break God's law, you deserve God's curse. And since we've all broken the law, we all deserve a curse. We all stand under judgment. And if we're ever going to be saved, that curse has to somehow be removed. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. Redeeming his people from the law's curse. It's the thrust of Paul's argument in our passage. He is trying to help the Galatians understand that they no longer stand under the curse of the law because Jesus, he says, has redeemed them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 13. What is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that Jesus pays the debt that our disobedience has incurred. Redemption is a word that comes from the marketplace. It refers to the payment of a price. It's a word that was used at the slave market in the first century, referring to the purchase price of a slave. A friend could come and buy a slave back from captivity and set him free. Being liberated through the payment of a ransom, it was referred to as being redeemed. And in order to pay this priceless ransom, Jesus had to endure God's curse, which is exactly what we owed due to our disobedience. And why did Jesus have to do this? Well, someone's got to pay, right? We all intuitively know this. God just can't overlook disobedience. Someone's got to absorb the cost. And we know this experientially. If you break something of mine, let's say... I've got two options. I can either make you repay or I can absorb the cost myself. And the more valuable the item is that's broken, the bigger the cost that needs to be absorbed when it's destroyed. In other words, justice against sin must be served. God can't just turn a blind eye. And at our core, we all desire this. We all know this has to be the case. And if you've ever had evil things done to you, you know this acutely. So who pays? Who bears the cost for our disobedience against God? Well, the debt of our disobedience, it doesn't just disappear. No, according to Paul, Jesus voluntarily takes the curse. He becomes a curse for us, which means he pays everything. Jesus absorbs God's wrath. It's what our sin deserves. On the cross, Jesus was paying a debt, even though it wasn't his. 
We deserve the curse, but Jesus becomes a curse for us so that he might redeem us, so that he might pay the price that sets you free. And if you want assurance this morning, Paul invites us to look at the cross. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23, where Moses writes, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In the context, it meant that if someone violated the law of God in such a way that required death, after they were put to death, which was typically done by stoning in the Old Testament, they were hung on a tree or a pole as a sign that they were cursed of God. Yet, in the Old Testament says that they could not hang overnight. They had to be taken down and buried before the sun went down. Now, does that ring any bells for you? You could make the argument that the cross is the most recognizable symbol in all the world. And I love how one commentator puts it when he said this. Before Christ came, the cross was a gallows. The cross was a gas chamber. The cross was a firing squad. The cross was a guillotine. It did not mean at all strength or conquest. All the cross meant was that you'd you'd not won, but you'd lost. The cross was not a symbol of strength. It was a symbol of weakness. The cross was not a symbol of conquering. It was a symbol of having been conquered. It's amazing that the apostles draw so much attention to the cursed cross in their ministry, isn't it? Their main message was about a cursed Messiah on a cursed cross. In the Jewish people, we read about it earlier this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, especially the Judaizers, they could not stomach that idea. A Messiah hanging on a cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't fathom that the Messiah would ever hang on a cross. After all, how could the only man who ever continued to do everything written in the book of the law be subject to its curse? The answer can only be that his death was a substitution. He was crucified in your place. On the cross, Jesus was taking the curse that you deserved so that you might receive the blessing that he earned. It's what theologians call double imputation, where God imputes our sin to the account of Jesus and he imputes Christ's righteousness into our account. Martin Luther, the great reformer, described it as the fortunate exchange. And other theologians have gone even further, calling it the great exchange. Where the curse for sin was legally transferred from us to Jesus, and His righteousness was transferred to us. Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, He took the weight of our curse on Himself, not just in some abstract theological sense, but quite literally and historically. When he died on the cross, it's why his last words before his death were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cursed me? Well, the answer to that question is so that God could welcome you and me. Did you know that if you're in Christ this morning, if you have simply believed what you've heard by faith, that God sees you as though you have lived as perfectly as Jesus? Even though it's not necessarily true, That's how God sees you. There's been an exchange that's taken place. Your relationship with God now is completely secure. You're perfectly accepted. Not because of your obedience, but because of the obedience of another. And what this means is that the gospel is not a second chance. 
It's not a second chance at life. God didn't just wipe your slate clean. Jesus took your entire resume and he gives you his resume. Your account wasn't just brought back up to zero when you believed. Your account has been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. His perfect achievement, perfect character, perfect obedience, perfect compassion, perfect life became yours in the sight of God. That is the good news of Christianity. And through the letter to the Galatians, Paul wants to ask, are you living under the law or under promise? If you're living under the law, you will either be perpetually inflated with pride or deflated with discouragement. Depending on how well you're doing that particular day, depending on how well you're measuring up and passing scrutiny. But if you're living under the promise, guess what? You are free. If you're in Him, Jesus has already paid the penalty that our disobedience deserves. And you cannot pay the bill twice. Such a freeing thought. The penalty has already been taken care of. And it would be unjust for God to come and exact payment twice. All of your sin, past, present, future, it's all been dealt with. The payment has already been made by Jesus who became a curse for you. And now you are free. It was the great pastor and theologian Sinclair Ferguson who once said, you will never be fully comfortable with the amount of freedom that you have in Jesus. You will never be fully comfortable with the amount of freedom you have in Christ. The freedom Jesus has given you from the demands of the law will always kind of unsettle you. It takes time and experience to live into the freedom that Jesus has bought for us. We're not used to that kind of freedom. According to Paul, we don't do, we receive. It's not works, but faith. We could never do, we could only receive. The question Paul's asking in this passage boils down to this. Is God primarily one who makes promises or one who primarily makes demands? Are you living according to the promises or according to your works? It reminds me of a clip I recently saw from a sermon by the great Scottish pastor, Alistair Begg. Maybe you've seen this clip, you've been floating around the internet a little bit recently, where he says, Without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground for our salvation. He goes on to highlight the question from Evangelism Explosion, which asks, If you die tonight, and God asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? He says, if you answer that question in the first person, talking about what you have done, what I have done, what I have done, what I have done, you have immediately gone wrong. It's not about what I've done. The only proper answer, he says, is in the third person. It's about what he has done. Then he talks about the thief on the cross, and this is where this little clip gets real interesting, and how he can't wait to talk to the thief on the cross when he gets to heaven. Alistair Begg said that he wants to ask the thief, how did it all shake out for you? One minute you were cussing Jesus out with your friend on the cross. You've never been in a Bible study, never been baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. You made it. And he goes on to say, how did you make it? And then he talks about how that's what the welcoming angel must have thought. The angel that welcomed the thief on the cross through the pearly gates would have asked, what are you doing here? And the thief would have answered, I don't know what I'm doing here. 
And the angel, a bit confused, Alistair Begg goes on, says, well, wait here, let me get my supervisor, hold tight. And the supervising angel comes over and has just a few questions for the thief. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And the thief answered, never heard of it in my life. Then the supervisor asks, and let's get to the doctrine of Scripture. What do you think about the doctrine of Scripture? And the thief just stares blankly. The supervisor asks, on what basis are you here? And then, of course, the punchline from Alistair Begg. The thief said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come, and Alistair Begg says, that is the only answer. The man on the middle cross said I could come. It's exactly what Paul said elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the best news you were ever going to hear. And all you got to do is believe what God says is true. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel, the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, of what he did on our behalf. And we pray this morning that as you apply the gospel to our hearts, that we might sense freedom that we might get small tastes of the freedom that Christ has won, and that we might move out in that freedom to love and to serve and to experience joy in this life and in this world. We thank you that you walk alongside us, and we pray that you would keep us dependent upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.